Let's uh, seek God's face in prayer this morning. Father, we give you thanks for your greatness that we have just sung of. Father, we give thanks for uh, the abundant mercy that you've given us in Jesus Christ. Lord, you know each and every circumstance and each and every difficulty that every one of us faced this past week. Father, there are perhaps those here who are rejoicing and giving thanks for victories and, and prosperity that you provided to them. And there are also likely others who are working through disappointments and, and difficulties in their lives. Father, we thank you that you have provided for us in your word, your voice your truth, your hope that's found in Jesus Christ. And Father, this gives us confidence and hope that we can come at a time like this after a week that we've had, whether it be one of victory or one of seeming defeat, and we can find hope and we can be ministered to by your word today. So, Father, may we put away and put aside the concerns of this next week. Lord, we know that you hold all of eternity in your hands, Father, and that you know exactly what's coming around the corner this week. But we also know, Father, that you have promised sufficient grace to those who seek it through Christ. So, Father, as we look to your word today, as Bart brings your word before us and opens it to us, may we seek to be transformed and molded and shaped by it. May we find hope in Christ through your word today, and may we leave this place different than when we first came in. Father, work by your spirit as only you can. We pray these things in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. One of the joys of having someone in our pastoral residency program and then having someone else who's going to seminary is I can get two weeks off from preaching. So Bart, come and bring God's word for us this morning. Good morning. <clears throat> Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for uh, this day that you have given us. Uh, we know that your mercies are made new each morning, no matter what we are going through in our lives. And we thank you for bringing us in here to worship you. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to help us to worship you in truth and in you. We also ask you to draw us closely to you, O oh Lord. Help us to know you. Help us to live for you. Help us to give you all the glory. We ask you to teach us today and to change us through your word and help us to reflect you in all things that we do. And we ask this in Christ's name. Can I get a show of hands in here? How many of you in here either watch, listen to, or read some type of news source? Okay, yeah, almost everybody, right? Thank you. So all of you who just raised your hands, I know I don't have to tell you that something out there in the world has gone horribly, horribly wrong. 
Whatever the world is today, it is not the world that God originally created, and it is not the world that he will recreate when Jesus returns. Rather, we live in a fallen world full of sin, death, and suffering. And not only are we unable to escape the barrage of bad news and corruption that surrounds us, but if you guys are anything like me, then many of you in here today are also tired. Because the more we give ourselves to be holy and blameless before God, the more we give ourselves to following Jesus, the more we give ourselves to being obedient and doing the things of God, the more we experience trials and hardships and temptations and suffering. And this can be exhausting. Not only are our lives difficult, but so too is our witness. Maybe some of you in here have experienced trying to witness to your coworkers and seeing absolutely no response. Or maybe some of you in here have been trying to give the gospel to your family members for the past 10 or 20 years. And each year that goes by, they seem to get harder and harder and harder and less and less interested in not only the message about Christ, but also in you. This can lead to feelings of anger or resentment or betrayal, and it can cause us to ask questions such as, does anything I ever do make a difference? These questions and these feelings are completely normal. In fact, they're to be expected in our fallen world. But today we are going to unpack a text that is going to tell us not only what we are supposed to be doing, but also what God's plan is in and through all of this. Today's message is titled, The Church's Witness Among the Chaos. And we're going to be coming out of Revelation chapter 11. If you're coming out of the Pew Bibles, I believe that's on page 1034. Other than maybe the book of Song of Songs, the book of Revelation is the, probably the most difficult book in the entire Bible to handle. And so because of that, before we can jump into our text today, we have to understand what it is that we are looking at. And basically, the Revelation is made up of four main visions. The first one we see the glorified Christ examining the church. This is where the letters to the seven churches and stuff like that are. After this, we see the nations on trial before God. And this takes up over half of the book, making it the central focus of the revelation. And this is also where our text will be today. After this, we see the judgment and destruction of Babylon, followed by the reward for true believers. Throughout these visions... We are given signs and symbols that come to us in the form of seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. These have what are called a telescopic progression, where the seventh seal contains the seven trumpets, and the seven trumpets constitute the seven bowls. Between the sixth and seventh trumpets, 
we are given chapters 10 and 11, which work together as a single unit functioning as what's called a theological interlude in order to give commentary on the narrative and to explain what is happening so that we don't miss what is being revealed. So in chapter 10, which is inseparably connected to our text today, the first, we see two main things. And the first thing that we see is an angel with a rainbow over its head straddling the land and the sea. Now, when most of us read things like this, we're really quick to say, huh? What does that mean? Because we don't have a frame of reference. However, John's original audience did. In fact, everybody hearing this being read out loud in the churches would have instantly known that this was a reference to what was called the Colossus of Rhodes. And the Colossus of Rhodes was a giant statue straddling the land and sea that symbolized control over both land and sea. This is what it might have looked like. Pretty impressive, right? The Colossus of Rhodes is actually one of the seven wonders of the world, like the pyramids in Egypt. So later on today, if you'd like to know more about it, you can go back and you can Google it. Um, but it was located on the island of Rhodes in the Mediterranean Sea, just off the coast of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, where the revelation was sent to the churches. And in the revelation, there was a rainbow over his head, which is the sign of covenant preservation. And the statue was replaced with an angel. And in the Greek language, the word angel means messenger. And so this was telling us that this is a message of covenant preservation from the one with total sovereign control over both land and sea. Next, we see the angel hand John a scroll and he eats it. This is a direct allusion to the prophet Ezekiel who also ate the scroll. And just like when Ezekiel ate the scroll, when John eats it, it's sweet as honey in his mouth, but bitter in the gut. Why? Because it symbolized God's prophetic judgment to the house of Israel. And in chapter 10, it says that there is judgment to the nations. And so when we take all this and we put it all together, what it is telling us is that this is a message of covenant preservation to the house of Israel during a time of judgment to the nations from God, the one who created the whole world and has total sovereign control over it. And it's in that context that our text picks up today. So with that in mind, we can now begin to read Revelation chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Please join me as we read. It says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the outer court or the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will give authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky 
that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. In the midst of the chaos, we see here the role of the church. The first thing that we see in verses 1 and 2 is another allusion to the prophet Ezekiel, where an eschatological temple or an end times temple is being measured. In our text, the measuring means to count the people. And the temple and altar represent the true worshipers from among national Israel. However, we need to remember that when Christ established the new covenant in his blood, God's covenant was now a universal, international new covenant in Christ, no longer the old covenant with national Israel. Rather, we come to find that national Israel is a type or a picture of Christ and that Christ is the true Israel. Many of you in here may have never heard this idea that Christ is the true Israel. And maybe some of you in here even disagree. However, this is what the Bible teaches as the Bible interprets the Bible. So in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, it says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Now many of us in here are familiar with the birth narrative in the early years of Jesus, but maybe a lot of us don't stop to reflect on the fact that he fulfilled this prophecy. And the prophet being mentioned here is Hosea. In 11.1, he said, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. So we see here how Christ is the true Israel. Then in our text here, when it talks about do not measure the outer court, the outer court is where the Gentiles were. And so what it's telling us is that the fullness of the Gentiles have yet to come into the temple. Then we see the 1,260 days, which is 42 months, which is also three and a half years. And here it represents the three and a half years between the Jewish revolt in 66 AD and the fall of the temple in 70 AD, when the church was the dominant covenant people in Jerusalem at that time. Beyond that, it lets us know that Christ reigns through his church. And then we see the two olive trees and the two lampstands. This imagery is coming from Zechariah chapter 4. And basically what it is saying is the true worshipers from among national Israel, along with the true worshipers from among the Gentile church, are standing together with Christ, shining the true menorah light of the Lord into the surrounding darkness. This is what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 11 when he talked about the cultivated olive tree, meaning national Israel, and the wild olive tree, meaning the Gentile church, both who are rooted in Christ, the root, constituting all Israel. As Christ is the true Israel, and all those chosen in him to be holy and blameless before him will be saved. Yet this salvation comes through the preaching of the gospel. 
When the Apostle Paul, along with Timothy and Silas, also known as Silvanus, were together in Corinth during Paul's second missionary journey, they wrote two letters to the church in Thessalonica that they planted just before this. The first one was simply to teach them and encourage them. But then a few months later, they received word of mouth that the church was still enduring persecution, which is what forced Paul out in the first place. And many there were confused about the teaching on the day of the Lord because people were among them teaching that the resurrection had already happened. And so they wrote them a second letter in order to clear up the teaching on the day of the Lord, offer some guidance on how to deal with the idle people in the community because unlike the church in Corinth, the church in Thessalonica was extremely poor and everybody needed to contribute. But then they also wanted to offer some encouragement during their time of affliction. And I'd like us for a moment just to stop and consider what it is that they wrote to the church. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, just after the teaching of the day of the Lord, we see them write this. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let us pay close attention to the language in verse 14. It says, to this he, meaning God, called you, meaning the church, through our, meaning the missionaries, gospel. Why? So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The glorification is the final stage of our salvation. And we are seeing here how all of salvation is rooted in our election. As God chose you, God calls you, God justifies you, God sanctifies you, and God will glorify you. Yet all of this we're seeing here also takes place through the preaching of the gospel. And in our text today, in Revelation chapter 11, it is telling us that all of you who have been born again to a living hope in Jesus and united to him through faith in him alone have the same power that Elijah did when he made it stop raining. You all have the same power that Moses did when God used him to deliver his people from bondage in Egypt. The gospel you preach has the power to raise the dead as spiritually dead people come to life as they are granted faith in Jesus Christ. Yet the same gospel witness that serves to bring some people to salvation also serves to judge those who reject Christ. And so the role of the church is this. We have a prophetic witness among the chaos, preaching the gospel for salvation to all who will believe and judgment for all who reject Jesus. This right here is a great responsibility. And it has been handed to all of us, all of us as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Yet it comes with consequences, which brings us to point number two, the responsibility of the church. Take a look at verse seven. And when they had finished their testimony, 
The beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. From three, excuse me, from three and a half days, some from the people and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on, fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven hundred people were killed and in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. This is a lot of content. And if we were to focus on every little detail, not only would we be here for the next two to three hours, but we would also lose sight of the forest for the trees. We don't want to do that. Instead, what we want to do is we want to recognize here how the church has a testimony and it serves to torment those of the world. They hate us. They mock us. Many of them want to kill us. And some of them do. And when they do, Many of them will celebrate over top of our dead bodies. I cannot help but think right here of all the videos that have been posted online since 9-11 of all the terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda chopping the heads of Christians off and then celebrating over top of them. The unregenerate world is under the dominion of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will and to revile God and his people. The world's idea of freedom is radical autonomy. And radical autonomy means wanting to do what you want, when you want, how you want, at everybody else's expense, and at the total exclusion of God. This is the very essence of the sinful nature. And Paul told Timothy that everyone who wants to live a godly life, will be persecuted. Why? Because the world is at enmity with God. They live in darkness. And they love the darkness. And they hate the light. But we have been called to persevere, to stand with Christ counterculturally, and to speak the truth. As revealed in the Bible, we are not to accommodate sin in our lives. We are not to accommodate sinners in our company. Regardless the backlash, we are to be a prophetic witness among the chaos and willingly give our lives for the sake of following Christ. As Jesus said, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus also said, 
If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And this points us back to our text. Because the three and a half days followed by the resurrection and ascension in verses 11 and 12 should be understood as the church's union with Christ. As we have died with Christ, we have been raised to new life in him, and we have been raised to heavenly places with him, as it says in Romans and Ephesians. In Romans it says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And in Ephesians it says, God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that... In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So our prophetic witness among the chaos, while displaying our transformed and sanctifying lives among this cold and decaying world, will serve to bring people to repentance. In fact, Look at the end of verse 13. It says, And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. This is the only reference to genuine repentance throughout the whole book of Revelation. Yet we also need to remember that our reward is not temporal. While this is a wonderful blessing, getting to see people come to faith through our witness, this is not our reward. Look at verse 14. It says, the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. This is a transitional statement that points us back, calls attention to the present, and then points us ahead. And looking ahead, our last point focuses on the reward of the church. Take a look at verse 15. It says, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has come, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to God, or we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. 
Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. The seventh trumpet represents the fullness of God's message of judgment. The number seven throughout the whole Bible is used as a way to reflect completeness or fullness, and it's especially used that way here in Revelation. In the Lord's Prayer, we are taught to pray, Our Father, Lord in heaven, holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And here we are seeing a glimpse of what's to come. The new creation, the perfect kingdom, free from sin, free from rebellion, fully visible, where Christ reigns in person forever and ever, as it says in verse 15. This is where all of our suffering and all of our trials and hardship, all of it gets rewarded with everlasting peace and joy. We will no longer have to witness to anybody because all of us will be in the physical presence of our Lord. The 24 elders here represents the 12 heads of the 12 tribes of Israel along with the 12 apostles acting as the doors to and foundation of the kingdom of God in Christ as it says in Revelation chapter 21. The thrones represent the fact that they are already united to God united to Christ, reigning and ruling with him even now. When they say, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, it reminds us of when Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is the personal, covenantal name of God. And it reflects his eternality, his perfection, his power, and his glory. And we get to be with him forever. Yet the nations will rage. Because on that last day, as we are raised to glory, they will be raised to judgment and then destroyed in hell. And in light of this sure judgment, all of us need to seriously reflect on ourselves. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians, we should examine ourselves and test ourselves to see if we're in the faith. How do we do that? Well, we start by reflecting on our lives and examining it to determine where our trust is. So today, I ask every single one of you here, what is your trust in? Are you trusting in your good works? Are you trusting in your baptism or your church membership? Are you trusting in how many Bible verses you have memorized? How about your position? All of this is for absolutely nothing if you are void of Christ himself. Anybody in here remember the actor, comedian John Belushi? John Belushi, okay, yeah. John Belushi was a star. He was, he was uh, 
comedian, and he was a star of Saturday Night Live. He starred in movies like The Blues Brothers and Animal House. But what many of you might not know about him is that he grew up in an evangelical free church, memorizing scripture in the early years of Awana. Yet he lived a life void of Christ. And he died of a drug overdose. And his last words were, don't leave me alone. How sad. But we who trust in Christ alone know that we can, that nothing, neither life nor death nor anything else can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord because we have been united to him forever. Next, we need to recognize the urgency of our witness. So I ask you, how urgent is your witness? Christ is coming back. Newsflash, this is real and it's impending. The most significant event in redemptive history was the cross of Jesus Christ, along with his incarnation, his resurrection, and his ascension. But thinking about the unregenerate world, the second coming of Christ, when he comes in all of his glory, it is going to take them by storm as the mighty wrath of God comes down on them. And we have been charged with the role and responsibility of being a prophetic witness among the chaos so that some may be saved. And we should take this serious. Hmm? <laughs> no. In verse 19 here, where it talks about the temple, all of us in here need to understand that if you have been born again, if you have been united to Christ through faith in him alone, we, all of us, we are the temple of God. And the Ark of the Covenant in here represents God's presence in and among his people. And it reminds us that we are in a covenant with Christ that will be consummated in his second coming. And when we get to the end here and it talks about the flashes of lightning, the rumbles, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail, all of this points us back to the Exodus. And it reminds us that it is God who is delivering his people from bondage and revealing himself to us. And in a great and mighty final act of redemption and revelation, we are going to see the visible kingdom of God appear here on earth, and we get to be a part of that. So when you find yourself tired, or you find yourself burdened with all the chaos that surrounds us, remember that you have been left here. You have been left here as a witness to make a difference with a prophetic witness 
declaring Jesus Christ as risen Lord and Savior to all who believe. And even now, Jesus is on the throne of David, ruling and reigning over top of us, and he is waiting to return in all of his glory. So let us seek his face now, and let us seek his face forever. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed. We are amazed at your plan of redemption. We are amazed that you have chosen any of us, and we understand that it is only by grace that we have been saved. We ask that you help us all to live a life worthy of the calling that you have given us by giving us courage and strength in your Holy Spirit to be your prophetic witness among the chaos in this cold and dying world. There is so much corruption and hatred and, and sin that surrounds us, and you have given us an ability to make a difference through our witness, so we ask that you empower each and every one of us to do that, that as we go out from here, we go out here worshiping you and looking to tell everybody we see about who you are. We thank you for giving us your spirit. We thank you for, for redeeming us in Christ. We thank you for drawing us unto yourself. And we ask that you do that with all of our families. We ask that you do that with all of our neighbors. And we ask that you do that through the witness that you give us and that you help us to develop it in your Holy Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name.